Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt, and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. Susan Comavez. Susan is Professor Emerita at the University of Maryland. She is past president of the Council on the Advancement of Standards in Higher Education and the American College Personnel Association. She was vice president of two colleges and is the author or editor of a dozen books, including Student Services, Exploring Leadership, Leadership for a Better World, and the Handbook for Student Leadership Development. She is executive editor of the New Directions and and Student Leadership Series, and she was a member of the teams that developed Learning Reconsidered, the ACPA and NASPA competencies, the Social Change Model of Leadership Development, the Relational Leadership Model, the International Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership, and Leadership Identity Development Grounded Theory. She is co-founder of the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Programs and a former member of the Board of Directors of the International Leadership Association. Susan is a recipient of both the ACPA and NASA Outstanding Research Awards and the ACPA Lifetime Achievement Award. Welcome, Susan. Well, thank you, Miles. It's nice to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah. It's so much fun to, to have you back on. And uh, uh, we'll get started with uh, a very silly segment. It's going to be particularly silly today uh, called Rapid Fire. So, uh, Susan, are you ready for your first uh, very silly question? Yeah, but I'm also glad it's not the two truths and a lie one. That was really hard. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to make sure that we had time for for all the questions that we got. (laughs) And also, uh, I'm finding that uh, generating enough information for higher ed, two truths and a lie, is is a challenge uh, because there is not a lot of – there are a lot of funny things happening on college campuses, but they're being less reported than other important, (laughs) more serious things. (laughs) All right. So uh, my first very silly question for you, are you a cat or a dog person? Well, I'd have to say I'm probably a dog person, haven't had one in a while, but I just got allergy tests on Monday. I have like those panels of seven allergy shots still on my arm, and I'm allergic mm-hmm. to both dogs and cats. You are like severely allergic? No, no, just allergic. It just causes some congestion, not anaphylactic or anything, just congestion. But, okay. but I was real surprised. One of the things, two of the things I'm allergic to are dogs and cats. <laughs> hmm. I would love to get one of those allergy tests. I think it would just be interesting. It hurt. It did? It was interesting. Like, what is Johnson grass? I'm allergic to Johnson grass. I don't even know what it is. But also I don't know oak what that trees. Is either. And, <laughs> yeah. Oak trees. Yeah, lots of stuff. Huh. That is interesting. All right, my next silly question. Fiction or nonfiction books? Well, I, of course, read both, but fiction, I'd have to say, and I go for murder mysteries and courtroom dramas. So I'm a Grisham, Michael Connolly, James Patterson, Balducci fan. I like all those mysteries and courtroom legal kind of things. Hmm. I'm going to tell you, I rewatched the movie The Pelican Brief recently, speaking of oh, Grisham. Oh, yeah, it's good. Let me tell you, the strangest, it is very good, and the strangest thing happens in that movie. Did you know that there is, a story arc in that movie, or do you recall? I, I didn't. I did not recall this. That there's a story arc there about the uh, about the president being alleged to have uh, obstructed an investigation by the FBI. Did you know that? Well, how about that? It's the strangest around? thing. I couldn't believe it when I watched it. It blew my mind. So. Well, one of his later books gets into murders in the Supreme Court. So watch out for reading these books. Yeah. Oh. Oh no! Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe John Grisham is a is a fortune teller or something. Oh, no. Let's don't go there. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> All right, my next silly question. Uh, TV or movies? Well, I certainly like movies, but I'm a big TV watcher. I'm a terrible all-the-time TV watcher, binge-watching, House of Cards, The Americans. Um, but I also, like, keep it on all day. And even at my desktop on my computer, one window will have Netflix open in it, and I'm watching, you know, like Criminal Minds or something while mm. I'm writing a chapter of a book. But, but it's because I'm a major extrovert. Uh, mm. I have zero I. I'm all E. So having the voices and people sounds around makes me more productive. But mm. I do watch TV all the time. That is interesting. Uh, I know a couple of people like that who who do that as well. They'll keep uh, they'll keep like a, a window open for their, you know, where they're watching something. Well, or at least like sort of listening to it. But it'll be like up in their world while yeah, they're doing yeah. their work. It's really interesting. Yeah, I do. All right, my next uh, my next silly question: What's the best lecture you've ever given? Well, that's a hard one for yourself to. Uh, Assess. My, student, my students in the master's program, one of them called my class student affairs in a wind tunnel. Like things just whiz by and you try to grab, <laughs> reach out and grab something that's flying by. But I'd have to say, I think, I think my best quote lecture was a speech I gave um, in, as vice president um, at Stevens College, which is a women's college in Missouri. And my son, I'll try to keep this to 30 seconds, but my son was three and we had just taken him for the first time to... Montessori preschool and left him off and um, you know I expected he was going to cling to my arms and kind of be reluctant to go and instead he tore out of the car and ran down the sidewalk (laughs) and jumped up on the jungle gym and we just stood there and I went right from that over to parents orientation and gave the welcome speech to the parents dropping their first year students off for the very first time and these are a lot of them are first time parents and um, so I told the speech about they will remember when their daughter was three and what we just went through, and you're going through the same thing now, and you're going to expect her to cling to you a little bit, but instead she's out there making new friends, and it's time for you to go home. You know, so, and every parent in the audience was crying. I had dads mopping tears out of their eyes, but the <laughs> connection, I think the lesson for me out of that was to tell stories when you're giving lectures or talks like that, but also mm. to connect with the things that make us human across our context. You know, the context change. We had a three-year-old, they had an 18-year-old, or or like even this terrible shootings that just happened. Republicans and Democrats at least can agree they certainly care for each other as humans in government um, at a baseball game. So, um, But it was that speech. I remember that one keenly, seeing their faces from my perspective at the front of the room. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's... Um that sounds. I mean, that sounds really moving. I. Uh, this is your son, who's now a rocket scientist. That son. Yeah, this is my now thirty-six-year-old mm. son. So this was. Yeah. In many years ago, nineteen eighty-four, when I gave that speech. Yeah. But he's now the rocket scientist. That's right, Doctor Jeffrey Komovitz. <laughs> Major Jeffrey Komovitz, PhD. Oh, wow! That's a lot of titles. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so. Uh, my next silly question, well, I'm this, we're getting less silly, I guess, but uh, what is one kind of leadership program you wish was occurring more on college campuses? Hmm. Uh, of course, some things happen on some campuses that don't at all on others and vice versa, but I think in general an area that we really, as leadership educators, need to make sure is happening 
And I'll, I'll mention one kind of program, maybe in one type of content, but one kind of program that we, we got out of our MSL data was um, after um, engagement in intramurals and recreational sports, the most um, commonly engaged type of student organization was academic clubs and honor societies. And I would sure like to see leadership programs being done within academic majors that might actually be coursework or at least through their clubs and honor societies for members in those majors. Uh, we really need to get out and reach students where they are in those academic programs to help them see leadership in the context of the careers they're going to go into. Um, and I don't mm -hmm. think we have focused on that much. There's some good work in um, leadership in engineering schools, and some of that also is very traditional work. It's not very inspired. But I think we can help facilitate that across campus uh, with the information we have, with data we have, like from MSL. Um, and then I think the second thing would be content. need to see a lot more content everywhere in all of our programs on dialogue skills and listening, like listening skills. How do we really teach people how to do effective listening and conversations with others and be effective in teamwork and group work? Uh, because you can truly focus on the other person and try to understand them better and where they're coming from. And, and conversely, then, you learn to articulate your own perspectives better. But we don't do practicing of that. or te We teach about it, but we need to do a lot more of doing it. Hmm. Okay. All right. So uh, what work do you look back on and take the most pride? Well, I feel blessed to have had just such a, a rich wonderful experience in my career. Uh, but I'd have to say probably creating the environment, particularly at Maryland, to study leadership and take on really big, audacious projects that, because we knew the field needed it and get students involved from the beginning, which helped set their careers, I think, really nicely. We've already interviewed Dugan and Julie Owen and Wendy Wagner, and there's all kinds of people, Kristen Scandal, um, Daniel Ostick, I could go on and on. But they, to have an environment where there were people like that there who were part then of projects that turned into publications like uh, the Handbook for Student Leadership Development or uh, the actual um, multi-institutional study of leadership or the leadership identity development theory or work on facilitator manuals for things like exploring leadership and the Leadership for a Better World book was written by students in one of my leadership classes. So in general, I think that creating an environment and a culture where we were co-learning what the field needed and how to bring good thinking to the scholarship in that to help that advance. And that was just a marvelous opportunity. I thrived every minute by being around those people, being able to do that good work. Hmm. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing to be around folks who are, who are really motivated and excited and engaged in, engaged in learning in that way. Yes, and to know that we had the opportunities to actually turn it into product. I mean, because I had a publisher and because we had the National Clearinghouse, we could actually turn these things into products that could be used. Mm. Okay. All right. So we're going to switch to our, to our main segment here, which I'm calling the Leadership Mailbag. So uh, decided to do something a little bit different with the remainder of our time. We thought it would be a great opportunity for listeners of the podcast to pick Susan's brain. So we reached out to the SLPKC membership and in the broader student affairs uh, community to solicit questions, and we got a great response. So um, let's get started. Our first question comes from Brooke Wilson at Vanderbilt, 
and uh, it's a super question in density and quality. So I'm going to break it into two smaller questions. Brooks, the first portion of Brooks' question is, what are some different pedagogies for engaging a medium-sized group of students in activities and discussion around the social change model? One of our leadership programs is based on the social change model, and I have found it challenging but necessary to mi mix up my engagement strategies. Well, I think that, you know, first I feel like Lucy and Peanuts, you know, where the doctor is in, five cents kind of shingle. <laughs> I, I would, all your, all your listeners um, have probably much more um, timely and appropriate activities than I might suggest. I mean, the, those out there doing this all the time are where this good wisdom can come from. So I'll mention things, but I w really hope there's a forum for them to uh, exchange these kinds of things with each other. I don't know if the knowledge community might do something in that area, but uh, I'll attempt to share some thoughts. So, sh so um, Brooke's interested in engaging engagement strategies for exploring or teaching the social change model or using it with a medium-sized group. And um, mm -hmm. I'd say w one thing I'd just say, and this is like shameless plug, but in February uh, we published the Social Change Model Facilitator Guide. It is... Um, it's aligned with the Leadership for a Better World second edition that came out in November, and in February came out the Facilitator Guide. So it's keyed to each of the chapters. But it has all kinds of activities and strategies and case studies and uh, things to use um, in developing uh, a student understanding of, of the model as well as the C's and of using it for change and social change. So I would mention that for people that don't know that resource maybe is out there. Uh, one of the strategies I'd say, and I, I don't know if this is going to speak particularly to Brooke, but um, when I have time with a group to develop, to be working with the model, the first thing I try to do is to build the model from within the group itself. And so I like doing a post-it note activity. I give out a half a pad of post-it notes to every individual and put on, up on the board or on a, on a um, PowerPoint slide, what, think about what you need to know, value, or do to engage in collaborative leadership with others. What do you need to know, value, or be able to do to really be good at collaborative leadership? Uh, and give them examples like listening, like respect for different opinions and ask them to write down a word or a phrase on each post-it note, and then have them in groups of six um, or eight go up to the wall or, or a surface and whap up all their post-it notes and start thematizing, cluster them, talking about how they're grouping. Uh, if it's on a blackboard, they can use chalk to circle several categories and connect them to other categories. Um, but what they're doing here is the every individual's voice is valued, and the small group is making meaning out of that and trying to understand what each other means and then coming up with some reflection and meaning-making. And then um, as they report it out, and I'm processing it with them, I try to write their um, words or phrases in one of three kind of big imaginary circles on the board that I know are going to become the individual, the group, and the community kind of circles and look for things that relate to change. And then when we process it, I can say, you just built what this model, the elements that contain this model. We might have used some other words and we have some other things that I'm going to talk about are in it, but you also in your head and heart are valuing these kinds of approaches to be good at collaborative leadership. So usually it brings good buy-in from a group because they think, gee, we are the ones that said all those things, and here is a framework and a picture and a way of organizing it that we can then readily understand and then start digging deeper and fleshing out and developing the model. 
I think a, mm. another strategy is to be sure that you're having discussions around a shared focus. Uh, there needs to be something that's happened or that the group can bounce these frameworks and ideas off of, like a case study or a film clip or a role play. And certainly with a lower level of engagement, like it, it's low-level engagement to process a case study together, but one can really address this through positionality. Uh, you can say, let's think of this case study first as 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 you yourself or the person as the focus of the case. Uh, how, what, are, what are your values that are showing here? What are your challenges? What's your self-efficacy? What is your congruence? Um, um, and then you'd say shift over to you're a member of the group. How are you going to get the group to collaborate to handle this conflict? Or how is the group going to share leadership around what this case is trying to accomplish? And then look at the next level of community. What procedures and policies in the bigger environment would help this be better or make the change the individual's kind of wrestling with? So you would take a shared experience and process it by asking the individuals to think of themselves, but then also how is the group going to function in this and what's the bigger community role. And then if you can get into higher level engagement things, like the group is doing a project together, they're planning Greek week or they're planning homecoming, or they are um, planning how to diminish the rape and assault culture on campus. You know, what, what are the, how do you process and use this as a process model? How does, how does using this language help them understand what they're trying to change better, the, the restraints and the motivators? Um, so a group project service learning um, might even be studying a campus change initiative that has uh, happened and they're trying to diagnose why it worked or why it didn't work. Uh, but the model then serves as a process model to help understand multiple complex dimensions of um, trying to accomplish some kind of change. So those are some suggestions that I think in some way Brooke might find she could adapt or might be helpful. Great. No, I'm sure, I'm sure that will be very helpful. Um, the second part of Brooke's question is the students have also expressed wanting more of our time to be focused on the 8C change. What strategies do you suggest for continuing to keep the students focused on change during the sessions about the other seven Cs? Yeah, I think that's a critical question. Matter of fact, when we did the first, when we did the first edition of Leadership for a Better World, we had done some um, interviews with leadership educators around the country and solicited feedback from the National Clearinghouse Listserv. And several people said to us, we don't ever get to the change part. Or my students are understand individually how they can be better as a leader, but they don't ever get what social change is about. And uh, we want to help, we wanted to help people get to what change is about as the context for them learning to be change agents. So in the first edition, we actually flipped the model around and started with change and social change, so they would be thinking about those concepts, and then went on from there. We have reversed that back to the way the model is typically taught for the second edition of the book, because um, the way we do teach it is individual group, community, and then change and social change. But I think it's real important to keep change as the focus when teaching in each level of the model. How does the self change? Um, if you if you need to be doing something better or with more intentionality, how do you go about doing that? How does a group change? Like think about Tuckman's work, and we write about Tuckman in the book, but forming, storming, norming, and performing. How does a group go through those processes? And how can um, individuals and the whole group be intentional about the fact it's changing and developing as a group 
and then how do communities approach change? So when you're teaching the three elements, of groupings of values in the model, uh, make change one of the things you bring into how you, that you overlay on each of those elements. So they're looking at the individual and, and the individual's approach to change, the group's approach, the community's approach. And then I think we use it in processing um, as we're teaching. How do your listening skills support change? How does that make things better? Uh, did the way the group handled conflict support desired change? How is how we reached out to form coalitions supporting change or was divisive about change? And of course, I think you can use case studies that run through the course. So if the group is reading a case study and each time you're introducing new elements of the model, you reflect it back on the case study, you'll be talking about how that moves the group that's trying to accomplish the change more effectively toward that. I also think it is really good to diagnose a real change. Uh, maybe get a panel of people in around something that happened on campus that people were uh, had to be persuaded to change or were on different sides of, like a policy change of some kind, and then interview them to understand what they had, how they had to see it differently. What group, how did the groups they deal with view it? How did they form coalitions in the community from different positions? How was it viewed? Um, and I, I think it's using it then as a process model with the social change elements as the framework for that process. But I would bring change into each of the three groupings when they are being introduced and not just waiting to the end. Okay. All right, so our next question comes from uh, my colleague here at George Washington University, Natalie Hirschberger. Natalie asks, um, I've recently been reading about shared leadership and there's a seeming contradiction within the model that I've been thinking about a lot. Best summarized, my question is, if everyone is a leader, is no one a leader? Yeah, you know, that's kind of a classic question that gets asked a lot and even had, even had uh, one student um, almost in tears saying, does this mean that leader, that the leader is dead? Is there not to be a leader? Um, it, it really interesting kind of dynamic. Um, and I, I think when we're talking about um, these kinds of shared leadership, non-hierarchical approaches to leadership, well, let me go back and say um, there's some good work by Sonia Espina and Mary Albine and others who have written on the concept of entity approaches to leadership versus relational approaches to leadership. So entity approaches look at the leader. Very often that's the positional leader, and it's the person when they're in a leadership role and responsibility, and there's, that's where most of the studies are. There's a great deal of work on that, and that's how most mental models think of leadership. But the relational approaches are saying leadership is a process. It's what's happening among people when they're together in a group, and that's where the school of thinking around shared leadership, relational leadership, where those kinds of things emerge. And it's probably not either or. You know, it's, pro it's both and, because we're talking about enhancing individuals' capacities to be leaders when they're working with others in a context and doing shared leadership. There may be a leader in a position, certainly in those groups, but accepting the responsibility to be actively engaged in the leadership process is a leadership act. That's when everyone is a leader. So everyone's a leader as they engage with others in the leadership process, and that's that non-hierarchical approach. But it doesn't mean that there aren't managers, positional leaders, uh, people who have additional or different responsibilities in hierarchical settings to keep things moving along 
to make sure that uh, goals and objectives are met, and the group can do that too, um, and a person as well might do that. So individuals have positional roles, but they're st we still are looking at the, the process of leadership. So I kind of see it as a false dichotomy to say entity versus relational. I think that we've got to reconcile both of those, but it doesn't mean no one's a leader. It means... Um, so I'm not bothered by the question. You know, it doesn't it doesn't set up to me that as the uh, logical syllogism that then no one is a leader. Okay. What Great. do you think? Oh, I think that uh, I think that it is likely. Um, I think that it is likely also a, a false dichotomy. You know, like I don't know that. Um, you know, like entity approaches and relational approaches are mutually exclusive ideas. You know. Um, so I think that that's, um, you know, I think that that's a helpful, helpful way to think about it because you don't even have to think about it as if everyone is a leader, is no one a leader. You know, it's, it's kind of a, if everyone is engaging in the leadership process, then everyone is engaging in the leadership process, you know, and it can, it can happen both ways. I think it also speaks to the concept of leader as an identity. If everyone mm. thinks of themselves with a leader identity, like I'm a leader. I mean, I know I'm a leader. You're a leader. Um, I know I can do leadership well. I'm a leader. That that doesn't then have to mean that I am the leader. I am the only one doing those things to help the group. You know, we, it's not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so our next question comes from Stacy Malaret at the University of Central Florida. Stacy asks, I know that you're now retired, but are you available to speak at universities on your research and the social change model? <laughs> if so, do you have an agent uh, for speaking engagements? <laughs> this is like those doo-wop shows on PBS where they play all the tunes and then stop and get you to buy the CDs. feels like a commercial <laughs> in the middle of the podcast. Uh, I certainly am doing fewer speeches these days. I'm doing more writing, but I do. I still do speeches. Um, but what I really know are lots of people who are good at talking on these concepts or working with student groups or designing uh, workshops or interventions. So I'd be happy to hear from people. I can always if, get them in touch with good people, even if I am not the one maybe that will do that or be doing that. So I'm happy to hear from folks. Okay, great. So our next question comes from uh, comes from Chelsea Truesdale of your of your uh, your university home, the University of Maryland. Chelsea asks, "I work with orientation leaders and wondered about your thoughts on the intersection of leadership development and student transition. Namely, is there any unique training we should be providing to our student leaders in the context of working with students transitioning to our campuses?" Um, I sure do know Chelsea. I knew her. She was in my leadership class that ended up um, uh, doing some work on the second edition of Leadership for a Better World. So I know Chelsea. I went to the University of mm. Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, she sure did. And I think I'd, I'll probably make two kinds of comments as I think about her question. One would be, and she asked several different things really in this question. One is focusing on the OAs as leaders themselves. And the other is how do we promote leadership in students that are transitioning to campus? You know, how do we mm -hmm. how do we make that opportunity point work better? And uh, I think your readers, your listeners, will have lots of ideas themselves. But I certainly do think that orientation advisors are leaders, um, and they we need they need help from us as educators, perhaps on seeing how they can generalize their orientation experience to their future world of work 
when they're bringing in new employees or when they're working with their clients or working with anyone in transition. This is a tremendous leadership experience they're getting. In our lid research, one of the more advanced stages was actually generativity, where um, people who saw leadership as a process and as non-positional also became interested in developing it in others and bringing others along and teaching um, to others new approaches to how they could handle their roles and responsibilities. And so that is a stage in their own leadership development to realize that they want to help those other people be good and better themselves. And making that visible and intentional and naming it with OAs is perhaps going to help them see the leadership they're actually doing in their role is this generativity of helping others be successful in transitioning to the campus because that's what effective leaders do. They help others be successful. They help others um, understand what they're going through and in their transition. Um, so one thing certainly then is to understand, oh, the orientation advisors have to know a lot of things, but certainly they're all framed around this idea of um, transition and Nancy Schlossberg's um, kind of work on uh, self-situation strategies and supports. And Nancy's got an interesting book. I really, I read it. You'll, the title of the book is um, Retire Smart, Retire Happy. And it's not too <laughs> early for any of you to read this book, uh, not because of retirement, that's one thing, but she did some research with 100 adults and what pathways they took into retirement. And I found these pathways to be fascinating. And I'm going to write a piece sooner or later. I gave a speech on it at the 25th anniversary of the First Year Experience Conference, I used these frameworks in that speech, and I really liked it. But I think these pathways are um, adult span kind of pathways, even for younger people, not just retirement people. For example, they studied these 100 adults, and they found six pathways. I won't go into them all, but one pathway, and I'll use myself, are the continuers. These are the people that are going to do more of the same that they did in their career, but maybe in a little bit different way. So I was active in student affairs and leadership education, and now I'm doing more writing and doing this New, new, new Direction series. Uh, but I'm not teaching classes, and I'm not grading papers, and I'm not doing those other things. So those are the continuers. Likewise, let's take traditional age students. The student in high school who was involved in student council uh, comes to college more interested probably in getting involved in hall government or student government or some kind of entity that gives them the picture of the whole big campus. Uh, then there's the adventurers, the people who are going to start off and do something totally new, the make myself over type people. So for someone retiring, it means I'm no longer going to be a VP. I'm going to go be a park ranger in Rocky Mountain. Or I'm going to, and for the high school student, it may mean um, now I can finally be a dance major when I wasn't able to do that at all in high school. Uh, or now I can finally get involved in and fill in the blank. Well, anyway, there are these pathways that people in transition might take for comfort or because it's their opportunity to do this. And I think that orientation advisors understanding those pathways better might find ways for individuals um, to connect with successfully approaching the new environment and then within that finding their place and finding that niche. And effective leaders do that. They help bring people into community. They help people find that they're included and empowered and important in these new communities. I think another thing these OAs can do with these new students is to get them already challenging their traditional views of leadership, uh, having discussions with them about what kind of leader do they want to be on campus and 
what kind of leaders do they want? You have to talk about them in positional ways because that's what they think leadership is at that point. So that fits the context. But what kind of leaders in their career fields they want to be, and how could they? How could OAs plus one students to see that leadership leadership is more than being a leader? It is a process, and it, at this institution, when you're here with us. Uh, you're going to learn how leadership is what you do in teams and groups and um, with others and uh, begin thinking about it that way. And our research is once you put the idea in people's head that leadership may be non-positional or maybe process, they begin to look around and see it that way. So it's one of the motivators for making a transition in your leadership thinking, which is to label and articulate that next stage of thinking, and then it's in your mind and you begin to see it that way. So I think OAs are in a great position to help that uh, enlightened, emancipatory, liberation, pedagogy kind of thinking happening um, during orientation. Okay. Well, I hope that will be helpful for our, our shared friend, Chelsea. Um, we have a two-part question from Daniel Davis at Texas A&M University Commerce. Uh, the first part, uh, which I'll go ahead and ask, is what significant changes have you seen since you have been in the field of higher education? Since I've been in the field of higher education? That's huge, isn't it? Uh, wow. Matter of fact, um, because of a picture that came up on my computer, um, I saw a picture of my master's class at Florida State University 48 years ago. Uh, when we were graduating in the summer of 1969. So I was in higher education for 53 years, counting undergrad, and then 48 years in the field. So that's lots of changes in higher education. Um, and I think that's probably too big a question to answer. But I, I uh, think there are some profound similarities, things that haven't changed much at all, about uh, people working together, about homesickness, about um, uh, people being ready or not ready for academic skills. Um, I'm not sure where to go. That question is so big. Um, I think we've seen lots, we certainly see more interest in the big, the big three A's, uh, assessment of outcomes. Are we doing what we say we're doing? Uh, are we accountable for those? Um, accessibility, how do we make college more accessible to the broad diversity of the United States population and our uh, international students from abroad, but how can we be more accessible? Um, and then how do we get to be more affordable? Affordability has always been an issue. It got a lot better in the 60s with the financial aid programs, but then it's just jumped right back up with states hardly giving any money to higher education. One of my friends says we've gone from being state-supported and state-aided to now being state-located. You know, there's just it's just a pitiful amount of any public institution's budget, even how much they get from a state legislature. So I think those uh, accessibility, um, accountability, and affordability are uh, three big areas of change. Okay. And the second part of Danielle's question is, now that you've retired, are you still actively conducting research on leadership? <laughs> well, and I'd say not, um, not directly. I certainly stepped down from the MSL, although, and it continues, and, uh, but I am trying to advance scholarship. And certainly the scholarship involves literature research, and it involves um, um, knowing what's out there in the scholarship and research so that it can be woven into, like this New Directions for Student Leadership series. 
So Kathy Guthrie, who's the associate editor, and I um, have issues planned out to the beginning of 2019 where editors are doing really exciting work on um, good thinking and good practices and examples, but also compiling the scholarship and research that we do have uh, that would build a case for evidence-based practice, intentional practice. And to be able to still do that is exciting. And one thing I find exciting is when a when I'm reviewing chapters that come in from editors for the first time and with with as much involvement as I've had in 48 years, I can spot things that are that really happened maybe differently than those authors realized or a, a body of work that was more central to what they're presenting than they may have included. And so I'm able to, as their editor, enrich and inform their work by suggestions and, and, and enhancements in what's being written. So I've enjoyed using that 48 years experience in that way. Mm -hmm. Great, great. So our next question comes from Whitney Hedge of York College of Pennsylvania. Whitney asks, do you, you have any activities that you really love to best describe the social change model? We use the model in our leadership seminar and are looking for something to include instead of just a PowerPoint. Something, well, I would refer her to the social change model facilitator guide. I think there are examples in there and film clips. If I'm understanding the question quite correctly, um, you know, how to present it other than just the circles. One is, like I said, the PowerPoint, the uh, post-it note activity of developing it once ourselves. Um, and then, you know, others might include things like showing it in a good example on a film clip or a... Um, case study of why, let's look at, you know, why something worked well and then have the model evolve out of the processing of why something might have worked well. I think it's usually not good initially to, to take negative examples. Why did something mess up because they didn't do certain things? But look at why did something really go good? And then these become admirable and aspirational practices to want to emulate. I'm not sure I... I grasp the centrality of her question, but if not, go back at me here. No, no, I think I think you got it. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you got it. Um, the, the circle, the three circles should just be um, a reminder of how to organize the elements of the model. So any way you can get the elements out, I think is good. Great. Um, okay, so our next question comes from Casey Chris, uh, who is at Clemson University. She asks, I now work with student-athletes and find the language and scholarship around leadership to be profoundly different than my previous work in student affairs. How would you summarize the, difference, the differences in approach between these two areas of leadership literature? And what was it she was saying about her previous work? See, she was saying that she previously worked in student affairs and now she's working with student-athletes um, and finds the language and scholarship around leadership to be different between the two. Uh, between the two parts of higher education? Well, I think that, what, I hope that, um, it could be that her student affairs literature that she used was more narrow. For example, it may be that with student athletes, they would respond better to another approach to leadership like the leadership challenge, you know, where there are those five exemplary practices which include uh, inspiring a shared vision and enabling others to act. And there may be language in other models that are more congruent with the context. And she is still working with students. 
So, I mean, that context still works. But I would encourage her to look for models where the language fits um, this, the model that, that is working for her. I just think she wants to avoid only leader-centric models where it's leaders and followers because uh, her goal still should be to try to build empowering groups where individuals feel responsible for the whole um, and realize that they're responsibly to step up and lead, not just look to the leader for the leadership. You know, those kinds of um, – and there, there are models that get at ethics that would be good to bring into the student-athlete perspective. So um, no one should stick to just one, one model. I mean, the social change model is a good framework, but it also works well with principles from servant leadership, from relational leadership, emotionally intelligent leadership, um, leadership challenge. Uh, Dugan, of course, has done a wonderful uh, critical analysis of a lot of classic leadership theories, and some of those are widely used in sports and motivational psychology in some of those areas. So it would be good to know how to critique them you know, before applying them. Um, uh, we have found that some intramural programs, recreation programs, some athletic programs have used, for example, the social change model, particularly in the internal work they're doing with each other, not so much the competitive sports work, but the how can the athletes be good role models on campus and uh, find ways to contribute to the college culture, and um, the model then works for framing those kinds of processes. Okay. So our next question comes from Rachel Wise, who is at Brown University, and she has a question about uh, audience approach. She says, I've worked in a couple of different spaces where leadership development occurs. I previously worked in Greek life and now manage an outdoor leadership program. I found the approach necessary for leadership conversations to be very different for these two populations. Um, how do you prepare for facilitating a leadership discussion, and how do you vary your approach depending on the expected population? Well, I think we've discussed that a little bit, which is to really understand the context and the, the, the language that would appeal. Also, what the goal, what are the opportunities for addressing specific leadership outcomes in that context? Like in an outdoor or adventure education area, um, are they forefronting things like teamwork, conflict resolution, risk management, you know, are there competencies and skills they're looking to develop that they could then make sure they um, work towards specific competencies. It may not be that a theoretical model is as helpful to them in that context as it is something like Corey C. Miller's competencies model. Um, another is to look at the language the group uses, um, like we just mentioned with the athletes. I'll give you an example. Years ago, uh, one of my colleagues um, out at Metro State in Denver, um, they, have, they were all adult learners and they commuted to campus. And so lots of people came over from work to go to class and they did a lunch and learn kind of leadership series, but nobody was coming to it. And they realized they were using our educator language to try to attract people. And so they changed all the language of it around to things like managing upward in the organization, uh, getting the most teamwork out of your employees, doing 360 feedback um, processes. And when they spoke the language of the person from a work environment, to package their leadership courses, they got lots of attendance. They could still then teach some of the same things we value or introduce them, but they also could address the needs the person had in their own life context. So I think this may mean doing needs assessments with her students, um, doing a, um, info interviews in, 
like if one was going new into a new job, which is very different if you're moving out of res life and going over to um, academic advising, then what do you need to know about how academic advising approaches discussions of leadership and how they view leadership in the world of a work environment uh, for career development for students than you did in res life on community building and uh, team building on the floor. So you've got to see what, where is the emphasis going to be placed. But I think mm. well, this introduces a good place to have people know about Corey C. Miller's work around the 60 competencies and the whole body of work that she has. Mm. Please add something okay. you want to also. I, I haven't thought about uh, you know some of these questions, so I'm just ta- talking off the top of my head. Oh, no, no. I think, I think that's great information. Those are great resources. Um, so our next question comes from Trisiange Ortiz, who is at Marshall B. Ketchum University, and it's another two-parter. So Trisiange asks, uh, as you are building new student leadership programs, what is the best way to assess effectiveness of skill? Yeah, that's always a big question. You know, typically we assess how well they learned a skill pre and post, not how good not how good they are at that skill um, or how good that skill is at getting something done. Um, The way that she phrased that effectiveness of skill would mean is that skill efficacious in accomplishing an outcome that's desirable? And we do, you know, probably very little of that. In, in, In any case, I would say it's really helpful to think about rubrics. I think students are used to rubrics. I think they've had them in high school. They certainly have had them in a number of courses in college. Lots of faculty use them. But, and I would tell your listeners that Leadership for a Better World, the second edition, at the end of each of the chapters on the C's, has a rubric that assesses that C. So it's got four or five components to it that make up the C, and it goes from, I don't remember what the scale is, but it goes from uh, un- undeveloped to well-developed on that. And those can be used for self-assessment. They could be used for a 360 kind of assessment. So um, the staff in your office could assess the student executive boards, uh, executive board of your advisory group and give them feedback saying five of us all took this on you and this is the, the kind of feedback. Of course, they'd, they'd want to know you're doing it and there's ways you'd implement that. But So you could actually use it for an assessment. Rubrics are helpful. Uh, also, you all would maybe want to know that the American Association of Colleges and Universities has the a LEAP project, liberal education uh, project, and they have rubrics on lots of things like teamwork, um, critical thinking. Uh, so those are free on their website if people want to look at rubrics. Uh, Julie Owen um, developed a rubric on assessing the LID model um, so that when she was grading papers um, in a class, in their e-portfolios, and they were trying to place students on stages in lid development, they'd be able to see from the ways the students perceived themselves in leadership um, where they probably placed in lid, and so that may be helpful. But I, again, I think Corey Seemiller's work on the 60 competencies, uh, she has self-assessment measures for each of those 60 competencies, so the student could, depending on what competencies or skills you're trying to develop, you could use those and Again, do um, self-assessment, do a 360 approach, like evaluate each other in your team. Um, and those would be ways to do that assessment. Got to make it easy. Scores are easy to use. Some of them are very complex to use. Um, 
And certainly people can use uh, the socially responsible leadership scale in their classes for pre and post kinds of things. That evaluates the social change model. And um, that is now available for students to take it themselves on the National Clearinghouse for Leadership webpage. Mm, we do have great. a new direction series. We do have a new, uh, an issue in this new directions on student leadership on assessing student leadership. Mm. Great. Done by Darby yeah. Roberts and Krista Bailey. Okay. Uh, do you remember? Has that come out yet, or is that yeah, is that it upcoming? came out. It came out um, last uh, winter. Last winter. Okay. Great. Well, 2016. A year okay. ago. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, okay. So Trisha continues. Also, what are best practices in helping student leaders take ownership of programming? This sounds like one of those where you need to probably do a consultation. Like, what's the problem? <laughs> you know, what, mm. what what's happening in in this program that that if, if it's specifically related, um, is it um, is it the program's assigned and a group just has to do it? Do they have little control over it? Are they not motivated? Do they not have the skills or ability to handle it? Is it over their head? I mean, you know, you'd need to ask a variety of questions like that. We do have an issue on the New Directions for Student Leadership on developmental readiness. So and that gets at motivation and readiness. Is the per, are people even ready to deal with more complex things you may need them to do? Um, but I, I tend to think that, that not taking ownership of programs is that what she said? Yeah, not taking ownership mm -hmm. um, goes back to feeling like they have no control or involvement over things that matter to them. So I think it's good for groups and advisors to back way up and give groups more control over the design or even um, um, what they want to do. For example, if a group uh, like a union programming board or a student government, if a group has to do um, homecoming, Sure, some group's going to chair homecoming and have to do homecoming. And as long as they know what the basic non-negotiables are, uh, like we're going to have this kind of subgroup meetings, that you all can decide what else you want to have. Do you want to have a parade or not? The parade's not a given. You don't have to have a parade. So think about what kind of experience you want homecoming to be for the people coming back. Or any other example, we've got to plan Greek week, but nothing is... Uh, uh, written in stone. Anything can be changed as long as you're within this budget. It's not illegal. It has no alcohol, and you meet these goals. You know, then let's plan programming. You know, and, um, then people tend to take more ownership. But okay. I think we, we in student affairs sometimes are our own worst enemies on this. We overly prescribe the things that student groups have to do because we depend on some of those programs meeting institutional goals and objectives, like there's going to be this kind of program because it fits this kind of objective at the institution, and we don't give the students enough control over the design. So my challenge would be to set minimal parameters and let them then create the program as long as it meets the goal or objective um, the institution has for that program. Okay. So our final question comes from Jessica Ryan, who's at the University of Pennsylvania. Jessica asks, how can student organizations use the social change model within their member education programs in order to collectively make a larger impact together as change agents? Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's what it's designed for. I, I hope it would be used in that context. But And as someone else asked earlier, the core question there is, what is it we want to change or make better? Um, what is it that this group is about 
that we want to improve, and then let's talk about important elements and how we might work better to improve that. So how does it take me, we, all of us to address what this change is about? So it helps a student see their role in it, their, their organization's role, and how their organization's part of the larger community, and that others in the community are probably interested in that change too, and who are those shareholders and stakeholders. So what's the role of each of us as individuals? What do I have to be like? What do I need to change about myself or understand to make this work better? Um, what's the best way to function in committees or groups? How do we want to be with each other? What norms do we want to set for our group to actually work well together, and then who beyond us shares a commitment to this, and how do we get them involved in working with us on this and, and assume that others want to be collaborative partners with us. The relational leadership model talks about inclusion and empowerment. How do we inclusively get the right shareholders and stakeholders together so that in that process we can be more effective as change agents? So I would, I would think um, the model is designed, starting with what is it we want to change or make better, um, to provide a framework for asking all those as the right questions. And again, think of it as a process model. I, al I always have thought of it as a process model. I think it is a values model. These are the things we think are important and value about how we want to be with each other to accomplish socially responsible outcomes and social change. But it is a process model for getting us there. All righty. Well, Thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. And thanks to Dr. Susan Comez for joining us here today and fielding a great and challenging set of questions. Uh, Susan, my last question is, what is one piece of advice you would give to aspiring student leadership practitioners? Well, I think it would be to two things. One is to get a hold of our new directions for student leadership series. Make sure your office subscribes so that you keep a flow of steady information. And the second is read John Dugan's book on leadership theory for um, crit adapting critical perspectives. I think um, for everybody who knows something about leadership theory, you're well positioned now to look at a way to learn how to critique it and reconstruct it in ways that will make it um, more liberating and informed for all. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. So uh, thanks to Caitlin Cooper and to Morgan Zusiak. Uh, Caitlin is at uh, Wake Forest, and Morgan is at the University of Nevada, Rito for, Nevada, Reno, for their production work on the podcast. You can connect with Susan Comavez on Twitter, at Susan Comavez, and you can get more information about the KC on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash lead on Twitter at NASPSLPKC and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter, and my handle is at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S, and my last name is Surrett, that's S-U-R-R-E-T-T. -T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your programs. So please shoot an email to NASPAleaderPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, Miles.